Makwe Masilela, Chief Investment Officer and Founder at Makwe Fund Managers. Gunjan, uh, Gunjan Masilela, Lochan Bab. Lochan, Muraroko, and good evening to the listeners. Thank you very much, my brother. Makwe, I want us to start out in Mozambique. Uh, and it seems the Central Energy Fund, alongside some interesting entities here, Africa Infrastructure Investment Managers, and also the Riatile Group, which um, has a wide array of investments also um, in the world of solar. Also, I think uh, they've got a 25% stake in um, a Jersey Gas uh, or the, uh, I guess, you know, city of Joburg's gas operator and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess something that had been flagged by this entity all the way in 2021 by Sasol. Uh, and it seems now that it has come to fruition. They'll still be around, still maintaining the pipeline. But what's the thinking behind this? Why, why offload a 30% stake now? Uh, I remember uh, the guys have mentioned that Russell, remember the company which was founded in 1950, the guys had the debt of almost $189 billion. So they were looking into either raising money by doing rights issue of almost two billion US dollars or else start looking into selling some of the assets. And the last count I think the guys managed to secure almost three point three billion from asset disposals and as a result they abandoned that division of rights issue. And as we're talking now, the debt levels has fallen to one twenty six billion and the gearing fell to seventy six percent from hundred and fourteen. So it's all within their strategy to say we want to get rid of this other asset mm. so that we reduce debt and focus on other stuff. And anyway, they've done well. If you look at the debt now, 126 billion compared to a market cap of 233 billion, not too bad. And I think other things that might be coming, they won't be as big as the ones that they've seen before because this one is making them almost 4.1 billion. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess for the Central Energy Fund to have an asset of this kind, I mean, uh, just for the purposes, Mark, we have those who might not know who the Central Energy Fund is. It's a state-owned company. What is it that they do? I mean, these are the guys basically who should be looking at our strategic reserves whenever it comes to oil. This is a company that should be helping us and make sure that as a government entity, we still continue to have some strategic involvement when it comes to the gas, the oil, the energy of this country, and hence it continues to be very important to us. Yes, we know they've made their mistakes before, selling oil at what? $26 a barrel, less than what was the market price. I don't know what is happening with that issue, selling some of our reserves, but mainly is to help us as a country to have somebody looking at those strategic works for the for the country. Mm. So, I mean, I guess also very much... Uh uh, outcome of the history we come from, where South Africa was sanctioned, uh, you know, countries, oh, yeah. a lot of the oil-producing nations weren't allowed to sell to us, and so you kind of needed some strategic oil reserves so that you don't have the kind of fuel shortages that can bring an economy to its standstill. Yeah, I can see that they mm. seem to be very effective. Central Energy Fund is regarded as one of the most effective uh, uh, agencies of the state that we have today. Mm, mm, mm. And I guess uh, uh, certainly one that also has been in the news um, or one of the entities, I think, Strategic Fuel Fund. Um, but uh, I mean, just when you look at how all of this gas investments in Mozambique, both by the South African government via now the CEF, but initially via an indirect stakeout in Sasol and the Mozambican authorities, 
Do you think the sentiment globally and the winds have changed insofar as, you know, the role of gas in our energy mix? A uh, lot of people talking it up and a lot of people saying, well, probably not the kind of thing you want uh, to, to play a major part in your energy mix. I think people, they say what suits them, you know, it depends on which side of the fence you're sitting at. Just look what is happening with Ukraine and Russia and the issue about gas. And coal. Like that was yeah. one of the exactly. I mean, Germany was up in arms. They didn't want to impose sanctions when it comes to the gas that's coming from Russia. So we know that it's not just the question that 35% of the electricity supply comes from gas, but it's very important for them going forward. So I think if people don't produce something enough, they have a tendency that, hey, let's look at another alternative. And those countries that have most of it, they tend to defend that. I mean, on the sidelines of the G7, Sidon Ramaphosa also defended the issue of fossil fuel, you know, mm, that listen, mm. as much as we want to comply, but hey, we're just not going to dump these things overnight. I have got just so much coal back home here. Probably you should maybe be looking at cleaning that coal yeah. so that it doesn't pollute the way it is polluting now. So I think the government was right. They just have to update and make sure that that integrated uh, energy resource plan continues to be relevant. But I agree we cannot just dump something that we have in abundance back mm, home here. Mm. And I guess it's a balance. Um, I mean... At the end of the day, I, you know, I always go back to the policy questions. We have a policy that speaks about a particular kind of energy mix. And in that energy mix, there isn't a, a situation foreseen that by 2030, we are just going to have no coal in our energy mix. Not at all. I don't think there's any country that has ever had a coal industry that will do the same. Uh, we're hearing I mean, the same, for instance, in Australia. Australia is even considering reopening old coal stations and similarly in Germany and other parts of the world as well. So, so I think there is a lot of propaganda-driven type discussion that um, doesn't even wed itself to any policy guide. And uh, some even are saying, yeah, review this IRP every year so that you, know, you can get uh, all manner of outcomes that are suitable, as you say, or favorable to them. I mean, Economics 101, you have a competitive advantage if you've got abundance of something. So why don't you use that? We might as well use that and then continue to benefit out of that. Where are we going to get the money to transform into all this uh, new way of uh, creating energy or electricity? We don't have that kind of money. And yes, they're ready to give us that money. By the way, it's not a grant. It comes as a loan and it comes with other conditions. So can they allow us as well to build up? And we're not saying we don't have to look into technologies to make our mm. coal much cleaner, definitely we should be spending money on stuff like that. And it makes perfect sense that we continue with coal and gas as well. Remember the argument about the nuclear energy, say, hey, it's going to take you 10 years to build that. It takes forever. Hey, it's 14 years down the line now that we still have load sharing. Mm. If we could have started that uh, nuclear energy thing uh, well, the question is, would we have finished the build process? <laughs> we don't start to finish. Um, but that's a story for another day. Um, I mean, I had a chance over the last few days or so to go into one of the mass mart retailers. Um, and in many ways, I felt over the last while that um, I think it was um, might have been a few days ago. And I felt, I must say, like, you know, I was going into a time capsule. 
Now, somebody's done some analysis here comparing one of those mass smart entities game and take a lot. They're saying take a lot by agency revenues is getting much, much closer to, I guess, the general merchandise revenue sales of game. Uh, and I guess the point that is being made here is not just of the massive upsurge of take a lot and e-commerce, but also, I guess, the massive structural weaknesses that Mitchell Slap and his team at MassMart have to confront insofar as their model is concerned, game, macro. Um, you know, they've also closed, I guess, some of the other stores, Dion and so on. What's happening here? I think a lot is growing, and unfortunately, mm. we cannot say the same about game. And if you just go and look into the results of NASPAS and Proxas, you will see that e-commerce portfolios continue to do well, and hence the guys are spending so much money reinvesting in the e-commerce. And yes, we just got a wake-up call during the lockdowns, then we started appreciating e-commerce. But if you look into the penetration, you compare us with the likes of China, Brazil, we still have a long way to go. That tells you that there's still space for us to grow when it comes to e-commerce in this country. And it's not surprising to see the likes of Take A Lot doing that great. And also not surprising to see the likes of Amazon mm. wanting to come into the country in 2023. So, yeah, the brick and mortar is not just of the retailers, which are kind of fading, but most of those things, whether it's office space, you look at the vacancies, you can see that people start working remotely. So we are getting into another era. So it just makes perfect sense to see that Take A Lot is taking some of the market share going forward. And unfortunately, they're comparing it with game because it's more of a fair comparison because especially when it comes to your electronics or TV, stuff like that, you can only compare it to game. But going forward, even when it comes to food, you look at Mr. D, uh, the food delivery, not doing that bad, you know. Mm. And it just shows you that these guys, by the way, they're not selling their own products. They, and also the commission sure, that, hey, sure. I'm delivering that to you, you know. So, yes, with the likes of game, we know those are the products that went through the tears. But it's not surprising. And I think we just have to praise ourselves to see more of this. Mm. Maybe then a last one, just uh, as we wrap up, uh, Mark. I mean, I'm quite interested in your thoughts just on um, the latest trade policy moves between some of these big nations, China, UK and the US. We saw China coming out and saying they're going to extend their tariff exemptions for particular products that had been extended to the US. We also anticipate Joe Biden will say something about, um, you know, the trade policy regime insofar as Beijing is concerned. But the UK has come out, uh, yeah, clear, Bonner. Uh, and interestingly, across the political divide, I mean, the Conservative, the Tories and Labour saying the same thing, saying we will smack tariffs on, you know, Pakistani, Turkish and Chinese steel in particular. Um, in order to protect, I guess, uh, the steel-producing belt of the United Kingdom um, and maybe also protect, I guess, a post-Brexit vote. What do you make of this? You know, it's been done before, and mm. I think it's a way of China showing that, listen, we're not fighting with you the way we used to fight with Donald Trump. Let's try to find a way going forward. And Joe Biden, I think, is also under pressure to say, listen, you're not just going to cancel what Donald Trump started before because Donald Trump managed to show the world that China was very manipulative and then hence they had to impose those uh, tariffs and the guys also have to come with counter tariffs. But mm. we know it was now this exemption is mainly on the American equipment, our wood stuff, 
But when it comes to the UK, I think the guys are doing what is best for their country, protecting what is important to them. The steel industry area is not just important to the UK. Back home here, we know what happened to the likes of ExxonMobil. We know mm. people have been complaining about the cheap steel that is coming. And the guys are saying, listen, we're prepared to face you as a World Trade Organization, but we don't see anything wrong from our side to try to defend an industry that we strongly feel is very important to our country. So, yes, we are ready. We'll deal with it mm. when a need arises. And definitely the guys will try to challenge it. And as you said, it's not only China, but China is the most affected among the likes of your Turkey and your South Korea and mm. India when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah. Last one on my end. Uh, interesting story coming out of uh, Tampon brand, Tampax. Uh, and uh, I think they're with Procter & Gamble. And yeah, some issues insofar as labor shortages are concerned, but also the shortages of the materials that go into tampons. Uh, and this following hot on the heels of the baby formula for, uh, shortage out in the US. I mean, we covered it a few weeks ago of uh, army planes being flown in yeah. from Australia with baby formula. Yeah, it's tough times out in the U.S. Tough times, and hence the prices have gone up by almost 10%. And now it's very interesting that the guys in the U.K., the market, the labor market continues to be what it is now. I don't know why people don't want to take those kind of jobs. Is it maybe because of the jobless claims that they usually get from their government, mm. that they feel weighing the options? And also we've seen, I think it was yesterday or so, the state of California saying it will give people just over a thousand US dollars because inflation is high. So I'm not sure whether people are spoiled because of that. But it's very interesting, especially when you look into South Africa, that we are talking here unemployment, which is almost 40%. And you've got people who don't want to take not just jobs, but good paying jobs with mm. good packs. I mean, 80000 per month. Huh. Entry level wage. 80000 Yeah, yeah. So, but just the end level wage, the medical aid, paid vacations. Yeah, we've got even a fitness center, by the way. You see, this labor shortage, I guess, is exposing a lot. But uh, we'll have to leave it here for tonight, Mark. Where, as always, Alice Dolibab.